We'll be speaking this morning from Mark chapter 9, if you want to open up your Bibles to Mark 9. But also, if you want to put a thumb, we're going to look first, actually, at Exodus chapter 32. Jesus bears with us. Jesus bears with us. Jesus, um, Jesus puts up with us. He does. We are uh, a struggling people. We're a mess. We're often uh, full of um, unbelief. And we need, we need the Lord to, to carry us. We need him to, to bear with us, to uh, sympathize with us, to have compassion on us because we are so desperately weak. Now, Jesus has been having this uh, glorious uh, encounter up on the mountaintop, Mount Hermon, at least good possibility that that is the case. There's a, there's a similarity in the Old Testament to the uh, encounter that we have in Mark chapter 9. It's found in Exodus chapter 32. And it's the account of, uh, of Moses being up on top of uh, the mountain. And as God has been speaking to him, obviously he has been... Um, delaying the people are getting impatient as they're waiting for Moses to come down off of Mount Sinai and in verse 7 of Exodus chapter 32 and the Lord said to Moses go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves how quickly they were to corrupt themselves. Oftentimes when we, uh, when we speak about Israel, we think about Israel being a, a bunch of uh, believers. That the, the, the Jewish people, as they were wandering around in the wilderness, they were just rebellious Christians. The truth is that many of them, most of them, were not believers at all. In fact, the Bible says that they fell in the wilderness in unbelief. And they, they instantly exposed their, their heart. Say, so how, could, how could the people of God, how could the people of God, when Moses goes to the top of this mountain, how could they so quickly being Christians? Now, we understand Christ did not come yet, but looking forward to the coming Messiah, those who were genuinely Saved. How, how could people who are Christians so easily turn away and so quickly build a golden calf and worship a foreign god? How could they so quickly uh, get involved in a licit uh, relationship, sexual sin? They rose up, the scripture says, to play, and they weren't playing bingo. How, how, is that, how is that possible that you have this nation of, of believers that, well, maybe they were just carnal Christians? Just carnal. No. The reason they were able to so quickly turn away from God is because their hearts were not regenerated, their hearts were not changed, they really weren't saved. 
How is it possible that someone can so easily come to church and then walk out the doors and live a, a lifestyle completely against God after hearing the message of God, singing it, praying it, having it preached, talking about it, so quickly move out and, um, and go into the world and live exactly like the world? Well, it's not because the church is full of carnal Christians. This whole teaching that says, well, you make Jesus Christ Savior, that's your ticket away from hell, and later on you can make him Lord. There's no such thing in the scriptures. This doesn't, doesn't mean that we live a sinless life by any stretch of the imagination. But listen, there are many people who sit in church who aren't saved. It, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a matter of, well, this is just a person just kind of struggling in their faith. Yes, there are people who struggle in their faith. Yes, there are people who go through great times of rebellion. Yes, Christians sin on a daily basis and sometimes sin in great ways. But a lifestyle that just so easily is unconvicted by the things of God in fact, those who are unsaved, when they hear the word of God and they're religious, they actually take great offense at it. <gasps> How dare that be said? Why? Why, why is the person offended? How, how could these, these people in Exodus chapter 32, how could they abandon God so quickly? Oh God, if we only saw you part the Red Sea, surely we would be Christians. Oh God, if you only did some kind of wonderful sign in my life, if you came down and did something spectacular. I was talking to a lady about this exact thing after last Sunday about people having spiritual experiences or even seeing God move in a mighty way that are not necessarily Christians. Were there believers in Israel? Yes. But it was because they had the faith of Abraham because they had changed hearts. And what we need today is we need some people within the church to get saved. There, 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 are, there are people who think that they're saved and they're not saved. I mean, you, you think about the testimony someone in Israel could give. I went through the Red Sea. I've seen God feed us with manna. Boy, I must be really in with God because I see all these wonderful things taking place. I, I see the, the miracles of God all around me. I see what he did. I see Moses go up the mountain and talk with God. And all of a sudden, there's a transformation that takes place of people that look like they're worshiping God. All of a sudden, they are worshiping a golden calf. How, how, does that, how does that happen? Well, it happens because there's never really been any true transformation of the heart. Moses is having this wonderful encounter with God. God is speaking to him. God is uh, ministering to him. He's up on the mountain hearing from God very, very clearly. And down below, you have the, the, the glory of God on the mountain, and down below you have rank unbelief. Rank unbelief. 
There might be one here today. You've come to church over and over again. You've heard the gospel. How many times have we prayed with even people with tears in their eyes to only see them walk away instantly back into the world of darkness? How does that take place? Well, there was never truly any relationship that was established based upon peace and forgiveness and joy in the Holy Spirit. If that's you today, and you're listening to this, and you're going, yeah, I've had all these uh, different, uh, I've gone to church and had spiritual encounters, and come to think of it, I don't know if I really know God, and this kind of is actually offending me. It quite possibly is the work of the Holy Spirit saying, waste no time in getting your heart right with God. And pray until you receive the gift of salvation. Pray. So these people weren't praying. They were praying to the wrong God. They weren't praying to the true God. They were, they were playing instead of praying. And so God says to Moses, time to go down the mountain and you need to check out what is going on. Joshua, his assistant, who had been waiting for him, verse 17 of chapter 32, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, they're coming down the mountain, they hear the shouts. He said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. Have this glorious experience with God on the mountain to only come down the mountain to see a group of people who are not worshiping the true God, who are not praying like they should be, who are not praising, but rather they are partying. And rather, they are sinning. Now, the reason this uh, text is pointed out is because if you turn back to Mark chapter 9, where we're at in our, in our text, Mark uh, the ninth chapter, Jesus has just been on top of a mountain. Jesus has just been on top of a mountain where he has been transformed. He has been transfigured. Peter, James, and John are with him. They have this glorious experience. It's a wonderful encounter where the Lord is, um, is glorified right before them with the glory of, of heaven emanating from his, his very being. But they had to come down, they had to come down from the mountain. And in verse 14 it says. So they come down, and then Elijah, Moses, they've both uh, disappeared. They've gone back to glory. And when they came to the disciples, these are the, these are the remaining nine disciples. Remember, three were taken up the mountain. Nine were, nine were left uh, down below. And uh, things didn't fare so well. I don't know if you've noticed this, sometimes when daddy's away, things don't go so well. It's not all the time, 
But this is kind of, the, the nine disciples kind of had a hard time um, holding the fort down while Jesus and the other three were away. There was a, there was a problem. And uh, so you can see Jesus, uh, Jesus taking the three up with him. Nine are, are left behind, and they're not, they're not doing so well. And as they came, verse 14, to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. This is a, this is a picture of chaos. And Jesus comes down the mountain. This is uh, the next day, Luke, uh, Luke tells us, and here's what they see. They see a fight taking place. Here are the scribes, the, the teachers of the law. They are fighting. They are arguing. There's a crowd. It's, it's agitated. It's, uh, it's chaotic. It's a problem. You know, whenever Jesus is not uh, the center of things, things get chaotic. Whenever he's not in charge and whenever he's not... Lord, there is, a, there is a problem. There's a problem here with the scribes because they are definitely not believing. In fact, they seem to like agitating the, the nine disciples. Oh, yeah, well, Jesus is the Messiah. Where is he at now? You, you, say, that he's the, you say that he's the Lord? Oh, really? And they're, they're, they're saying, well, look at these scriptures. And we've been looking at scriptures with, uh, about Elijah in Malachi. There's, there's chaos. They're arguing. They're fighting with one another. There are problems here. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, they were greatly amazed. So there's a, there's a fight ensuing. There's a, an argument taking place. The scribes are definitely giving the disciples a hard time. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. It's not that he had the uh, glow on his face like Moses did, for Jesus said, don't tell anybody about this, about what had happened on the mountain. But there was a suddenness about this. There was a majesty about Jesus when he shows up. It's like, okay, we get it. Now, now the one with authority is here. They had been fighting. The, the disciples had very little to no power. They couldn't handle the crowd. They could not handle the scribes. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up with his piercing eyes. He's just been spending time with his father and with these apostles. There's a majesty about him. There's a wonder about Christ. There he is. They're bickering with one another. They're having problems with each other. And all of a sudden, there Jesus is. And they look at him and they see something quite different about Jesus. He's not your typical disciple. That's, that's not what's going on here. They're greatly amazed. Here's Jesus. Here's the one who has power. Here's the one who is majestic. To look at Christ, such a difference about him. Even though he had uh, no form or majesty in the sense of... Um, Hollywood looks. There was something about him. There was, there was power. There was an authority when he spoke. There was a, there was a wonder about his, 
his ministry. And so he's been away. There's problems, just like there were problems back in Exodus, uh, the 32nd chapter. They were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Okay, now we've got a problem here, and we've got the one who we think can solve our problem. And Jesus asks them, he says in verse 16, he says, and what are you arguing about with them? He says, what is going on? I go up onto this mountain, I go up to uh, show the glory of heaven, and uh, I come back down, and here's a... Here's a, a mess that's ensuing. Here's a, a major problem. He's, he's looking at them fighting with each other, and he asks them a simple question. By the way, any father would ask this kind of question. He would say, what are you guys, what are you guys fighting about? And while there was a, an authority in his voice, there was a compassion in his voice. There was a, 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 a sense of sympathy and a sense of kindness yet Jesus was no, no pushover. He wants to know what they are arguing about. And someone from the crowd said to him, now listen, have you ever been into a situation where no one wants to say what's been going on? You ever have kids like this? You come in and you go, maybe you haven't come down from the, the mountain. It's like the second floor maybe. And you hear the noise, and it's not the noise of peaceful children playing and praying. <laughs> Has that ever happened in your home? Oh, what is that wonderful sound? Oh, the children are downstairs having a prayer meeting. Oh, oh, does that go on in your house? Yes, all the time. Oh, that's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Ah, doesn't in mine. Okay, all right. What kind of house do you live in? Oh, so he comes down, and uh, instead of peace, there's a fight. And Jesus uh, says to them, what are you arguing about? Now, the crowd doesn't say anything. The crowd's just silent. Jesus looks at his nine disciples who are there. They're not speaking up. And Jesus even has such authority, such majestic power in the way that he is, in the way that he ministers, not even the scribes would speak up. So they're all standing there. It has calmed down. Jesus is there. And all of a sudden, a single voice from out of the crowd speaks. I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17, where we see a parallel. Matthew chapter 17. Verse 14. This is the voice that uh, comes out of the crowd in our text in Mark chapter 9. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him. So 
There's, uh, there's silence, except for a man who comes forward. He's a father. And he goes on to, um, he goes on, if you flip back to um, Mark chapter 9, Jesus has been asking what is going on. And he says in verse 17, so he kneels before the Lord. This is the right posture of a father before Jesus. He kneels before Jesus. And someone, that's the someone, verse 17, that's the father. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that's a demonic spirit that makes him mute. It's interesting. Oftentimes, uh, demonic spirits, even um, some missionaries will talk about this. When a, a, a person has a demonic spirit, sometimes they can't speak. And we have, we have seen this. We've talked about this before. But this man is troubled because he has a son. Listen to this. A son. A child. You think children can be harassed by the enemy? Oh, I tell you, they can. Oh, I thought, I thought demons just, I thought demons just harass adults. Not at all. In fact, in uh, this day and age, this is before the resurrection and this is before the spread of the gospel, there was definitely more demonic activity. This is why when you go into dark places today where the gospel has not been preached, you see demonic activity like this. By the way, we're going to see more and more of that in our own nation, and we are seeing more and more of that in our nation as it turns from God and as it's been turning from God. And so this isn't just something, this is why we're not just this sophisticated church that says, well, we, we really don't believe in the demonic activity. We, we don't want to get into all of that. Listen, I tell you, based upon the word of God, that Satan is real, demons are real, that his activity is real. And yes, a believer, listen, a true believer can never uh, be possessed of a devil. That is true. But listen, even in a Christian's home, you can be harassed and oppressed by the enemy. And um, this has happened in my own home, and I've seen it. I've seen the enemy at work even over my own children. You say, well, that's, uh, you're talking about in a Christian home? Absolutely. Now listen, it's even more so in a non-Christian home. You, you think about the way that the devil harasses believers, but you think about the way that Satan has in his grip unbelievers. You think about the things that people are watching on TV. The demonic shows. Have you noticed on TV that more and more shows are coming out about sin and the spiritual and the demonic and the dark and horror movies and all this kind of stuff? Listen, this is not stuff to be played around with. Well, I just enjoy a good horror movie. Really? Really? That's darkness. I, I just... I just I just enjoy, you know, just seeing dark things. It just kind of gives me a thrill. And by the way, we couldn't be talking about this at any better time than this month. 
You say, well, what's wrong with going around getting candy? Nothing. It's not the getting of candy that's the problem. It's the darkness we see all around us. The oppressive spirits that we see, even in this region. And Jesus, is, uh, Jesus is not afraid. And this man comes, he's a father. He's a father. Now, it doesn't talk about mom, and there's nothing wrong with that. We could talk about mom at some point. But this is a, this is a dad who cares about his child's spiritual condition. Do you know the number one thing fathers should be concerned about with their children is not the money that they're going to make someday or the job that they're going to have or the affluence in society that they're going to have. The number one concern of a father should be that his children know Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter if they flip burgers for the rest of their life. If they know Jesus. If they're pursuing him with all of their heart. But listen, there are, there are fathers who are not concerned about the spiritual welfare of their children. Listen, because they're not Christians. And you can't be concerned about the spiritual welfare of your child if you yourself are not a Christian. And so this, this father comes up to, to Jesus. And according to, to Matthew, he drops to his knees in the right position and by the way, fathers, there is nothing more humbling and there's nothing more beautiful than a father getting on his knees for his children. And fathers need to be, listen, fathers need to be invested in spiritual warfare. You need to be sensing when the enemy is at uh, attack in your home. You need, to, you need to be aware of that. You need, you need to be aware of when you see the enemy starting to harass your children. You need to be aware of that. You need to be able to go, wait a second, this isn't just flesh and blood we're having a problem with. This is a spiritual war. And dad, the, the answer to that is to, to get alone in your closet and to turn to Jesus because there's, there's nothing that we can do better or greater than when a father drops to his knees and just says, Jesus, I need you in my home. I need you over me. I need you over my wife. I need you over my children. Lord, you take control. There's authority in that. When a father gets down on his knees and he begins to cry out to Jesus. And listen, sometimes it's not instantaneous. There are godly fathers, listen, godly fathers that have been praying for children for decades. And it's not the lack of faith in the father. It's not that the father is, is sinful. It's just God's timing, waiting on God's timing. But listen, a faithful father, until he's dead, if he knows Jesus, will be praying for his children, praying for his children, praying for his children, praying for his children. Amen? And there's no guarantee of when that's going to be answered. It might be answered after they're dead. You know, there, 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 are, there are testimonies of people saying, boy, if my dad were alive to see this, he prayed for me. He prayed for me. One of the great joys of my life is to sneak in at night into my kid's room and they act like they're sleeping. <laughs> 
and lay my hand on them, I begin to pray over them. Father, protect them from the wicked one. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I remember my father doing the same thing. I remember at times being sick, it was rare, but sick, and usually, you know, one parent would go to church. It wasn't the whole family stayed home when someone was sick. By the way, there's a good lesson in that. But mom would stay home with the kids. It doesn't have to be mom. But I remember dad coming in and laying his hand on me, praying over me. It wasn't just me. It was all of us. So this father has a, has a child, a, a son. Listen, I pray, I pray that what the Lord is doing today, I pray he's stirring fathers in this church. I pray he's stirring fathers' hearts. To say, I, I, need, I need to get back to the basics of the word of God in my home, prayer. What am I bringing into my home? What's being a, what, is, what is entertainment in my home? Listen, Father, that's your responsibility. It's your responsibility. So he comes and um, he says the spirit, by the way, this wasn't superstition. Oh, that was, that was 2,000 years ago. They weren't medically advanced. They didn't know what a sickness versus a demon was. No, no, this was a demonic spirit. Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, something very demonic here. And he gets rigid. Now, by the way, have you ever noticed oftentimes with children, it's not demonic, it's just a, when, whenever there's a, an attitude of rebellion, there's a rigidity to it. You're not going to tell me what to do. So this, this father says, Lord, I've come to you. I've come to you because my little boy, not, not a 20-year-old man, not a 30-year-old man, not a 40-year-old man, my son is, um, is being... Um, demonized here by a spirit and he goes on to say this this is why there was a fight so i asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able you remember they've been casting demons out you look at mark chapter 6 jesus had sent them back remember they're like wow we, this is unbelievable Jesus had sent them out to preach the gospel, and he gave them authority over spirits. But for some reason, with this dude, they couldn't take care of him. Now there's a fight. Now we're beginning to see the picture. Why is there a fight here? Because the scribes are standing there going, oh, yeah, where's your power now? Can you even hear the devil at work in that? I mean, this is, this is the glory of God on the mountain, and all hell is breaking loose below. Isn't that something? Even in our world, the glory of God is breaking out somewhere, and in other places, hell is just breaking loose. Isn't that something? The glory of God on the mountain and hell breaking out below. So they figured, well, um, we're here. The nine disciples were there. And so this, this father said, 
Jesus, I, I came to you. You weren't around. You're like Moses up there on the mountain, greater Moses. You're up there with your three disciples. So nine of them were left. So I figured that they could help me. After all, they are your followers. And so I came to them and I said to them, will you help me with my son? But they couldn't. There's a, there's a right compassion here. Uh, there's a right love in this father's heart because he says, okay, I'm going to Christ, but I'm also going to go to others who I think can help me with the situation with my, with my son. I love what Spurgeon says about this, about uh, coming to others here in verse 18. He says this, this is Spurgeon. He says, I am afraid that there are some fathers, even who call themselves Christians, who have not yet done as much for their sons and daughters as this father has done for his boy. For they have not asked for the sympathy and help of Christian people on behalf of their own children. The father that's too proud. I'm not going to anyone else. I, <clears throat> I've gone to God, but I'm not going to ask anybody else for help. Listen, this is, this is the right hunger in a father's heart. Somebody help me. Somebody help me. I'm going to Christ. He's not here. Going to the disciples. Hopefully, they can help me. How about, how about when we're, how about having people, this is people that we love, people that we are close with, coming to them saying, look, I need you. We, we, need to be, we need to be real about our children. I hate that word, being real. It's, it's like um, thinking outside the box or something. It's so ridiculous. But we need to come to people. We need to say, look, my child, I'm not going to play games. They're not doing with, good with God. Listen, we can either be honest about it or we can just kind of cover it over, not really, not really deal with it, just kind of hope it goes away. Well, at least, at least they believe in God. At least every now and then they go to church. We know. We know. And a parent's heart believes the best, but we know when things aren't right. Amen? We know. And so we, we get godly people in our lives, whether it's a godly father, godly mother, godly brothers and sisters in the church. Think of uh, Jim Cimbala out at the Brooklyn Tabernacle when his daughter was rebelling against God. He said his heart was so heavy, week after week, he could barely preach. And at a Tuesday night meeting, someone came up and said, we need to get a hold of God for your daughter. And they cried out to God as a church. Oh, God. He tells this testimony all the time. Oh, God, get a hold of them. Get a hold of my girl. It's never too late. But they're 30 and they're ruining their life and they're 50 and they've never, it's never too late. It's never too late. Can you say that with me? It's never too late. It's never too late. Well, they passed the age of 15 and 18. I guess that's it. No, no. And chains were broken over her. Break every chain. Break every chain. The Father's prayers. I go, to, I go to God sometimes. I say, Lord, boldly I come. I believe my prayers are effectual. 
and believe that they're, they're powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. Lord, I'm not going to come and just whine to you. Lord, I'm going to come to you in faith. You will break every chain. What are the chains right now in your life that you're praying over? Break every chain, break every chain. So the disciples couldn't cast them out. Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, and then the, he asked the disciples, they weren't able. Now we get Jesus' response, how our unbelief must weigh on his soul. It did here in this text. He answered them in verse 19, O faithless generation. Who's he talking to here? He's not just talking to the crowd. He's talking to the scribes, but he's also talking to his disciples. He's talking to everybody standing there. O faithless generation, generation that will not believe. He says this, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The lack of faith, the lack of belief weighed upon our Savior's soul. Someone said that he could deal with all the physical suffering, but it was the sin, it was our, it was our rank unbelief that continually weighed upon him. The weight of somebody who doesn't believe. Imagine carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. This is what Jesus is doing. Constantly dealing with people who don't believe. Listen, many of these people that were standing there, going back to Exodus 32, they were not Christians. They weren't saved. Think the scribes were saved? Think the crowd was saved? No. Even his disciples, the Bible said, had poor, poor faith, weak faith, troubled faith. This was a tragic scene. How long am I to bear with you? But then he gives words of hope. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. I'll take care of him. Bring him to me. That what we do? Hey, Lord, I can't handle him. Jesus says, bring him to me. Who's the one who sets us free? Jesus. Who's the one who breaks the chains? Jesus. Who's the one who has power over sin and darkness? Jesus does. Who's the one who bears our sorrows? Jesus. Who, who's the one who, who bears our grief? Jesus. Who's the one who bears with us every day when we don't believe? Jesus. Psalm 103, we close with this. Psalm 103. Psalm chapter 103. Jesus knows all about our sorrows. Psalm chapter 103, he knew this man's heart. How long am I to bear with you, Jesus says. Psalm chapter 103, verse 8. Jesus knows all about our sorrows. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. Can you say amen? He doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He could, he doesn't. 
nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. That's another word for sin. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. Isn't that what we long for Jesus to say when we go to him? Bring him to me. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he, he, bring him to me. So far does he, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. Do you know the song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord? Let's sing that together. Let's just close with that. Would you stand with me? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Mercies never come to an end. They are new. They are new every morning. New every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's sing it through one more time and then we'll be closed. The steadfast.